0: So, thank you all again for being with us today. Um, Camille was preparing, and she was in my office, and on my wall, I have a little thing from Marsh McClun, Um medium is message that says there's absolutely no inevitability as long as there are willingness to contemplate what is happening. she said that's what I'm talking about that's what I'm going to tell them about. So with that, please, Camille, take it away, Tell us great. Um, so we're going to have a conversation about cyber war and cyber peace and we're going to try exactly to see what is it that we're trying to contemplate and from which angle we're trying to see it. Um, it's a bit of a big framework uh, and and you know I wish we were ha- having some sort of interactive experience in which we could pause and zoom and, and we're going to try to, to do that. If, if, if I'm losing you, if something isn't clear, um, catch me and, and we'll stop and, and pause and try to see where we're going. So my question um, starts with a quote from Richard Betts saying that war and peace are two sides of a coin. And what I'm trying to see is why it's so hard for us to see both sides of this coin. And so we're going to talk about cyber war and we're going to try to put it back in context. And I'm going to give you right now the path that we're going to so that you don't get, you know, no one gets lost. And I don't get lost either. So if I'm off track, you can also pull me back on track. So we're going to talk about when we started fearing cyber war, what type of questions we had then, like what, what type of fear this was. We're going to talk about what it's like today and what, why the main question of cyber war today is where you draw the line between an attack and an act of war. We're going to try to unpack this question, see what's at stake, talk about this question of the line between peace and war. Then we're going to think about how we have set up ourselves to answer this question. And we're going to look into frameworks, one that we know the cyber utopian framework and then we're going to look at cyber war not as a threat anymore but as a framework so we're going to take a step back and say okay what if cyber war is a framework it's a set of principles it's a set of goals that we're trying to see and if in, in that approach we're going to see what sort of reality has this framework produced and then doing that I'm hoping that we can start seeing some sort of bigger picture and, and argue that we need a shift of conversation, a shift of focus, if we want to try to solve this problem. So cyber war as a threat. Um, at, does that ring a bell for anyone? Is it something you've seen today? This is War Game. So War Game, this is 1983. And in 1983, um, War Games make the story about um, two kids who are trying to change their grades, and, and they're hacking into a computer to change their school grades and they end up uh, provoking some sort of a nuclear war, right? And so that's mainly the the big fear in, in that time is that anyone could hack into anything and blow up anything anywhere, right? This is very scary first fear of cyber war that could come out of nowhere and be unleashed on anything. And so it's it's very an accurate description too of how we thought about it because um, in 1983, President Reagan was in office. He had strong ties to Hollywood. He hosted a private screening of War Games, being like, see how bad it is? We need to address that, right? <laughs> and I'm not kidding. And in 1984, um, right after, it's also where the NSA starts getting the first responsibilities for securing some computers. And the first strand of concerns um, mainly led by the issue at Sailor at the time about. Um, NSA being in charge of securing some computers. So I'm saying some computers because, as we're going to see, this whole idea of who is in charge of securing what is, is a is a drawer with it's a case with many drawers, right? And there's a question of uh, who's securing the military network, the dot mill, the classified network, the governmental network, who's securing the critical infrastructure, who's securing the private sector, and we're going to see it's it's always much more complicated than just saying who's in charge of you know cybersecurity. Um, And we move on to the mid-90s, in which we continue thinking a lot about cyber war. And it's, it's becoming much more of a public conversation. It hits the public media. And it's a very important period in which we're trying to understand what is cyber war. So it comes from this overall idea within military circles that the information revolution made everything different, right, and the army has to adapt. And so the idea is that it's a new world out there, and either you adapt and you have a strong edge, either you don't, and then you're going to be very vulnerable. It's articulated by many people, including a bunch of futurists and people that are very close to the idea of the technical singularity. And there's a big sense of urgency into how the, the army is going to adapt to the thing that they call a new revolution of military affairs, the RMA. And so for now, we're, we're with the military and this idea that they need to adapt. And we're going to come back on, the, on how they answer this question. And so one of the questions that they're saying here is, if we need to adapt to the information revolution, there's a bunch of new tools that we can also deploy. And one of the questions in cyber war is, are all these new tools under one same umbrella? Right? Do we have some sort of new toolkit of cyber war things? Um, so there's many papers written about that time from the army trying to figure out what is the cyber war toolkit. Uh, One I like a lot is published by Martin Libicki. It's published by the National Defense University in 1995. And it's a paper that's just called, what is, not there, what is information warfare? And so he's trying to see if you can gather everything together. And his main question is, is there an elephant, right? So he's saying the, the way people look at it is that you're going to see all those military people saying, oh, I see something there, you know, it's coming from electronic warfare or something. And say, people saying, oh, I see something out there, it's coming from psychological operation. And it describes this big state of confusion in, in which everyone is it's very, you know, bits and pieces, and you see little bits of it, but you don't know if there's some sort of big elephant of cyber war operation, cyber war toolkit that you can deploy. And so when he's thinking about each part of the elephant, there's a bunch of things that are fun. Now, the first one is that he admits the cyber war is sort of like the wackiest part of the elephant. Right? The way he writes it is, cyber war, it's a grab bag of futuristic scenario. So at this point, we still have no idea what cyber war is. We know there's a thread. We knew some things is different. We knew we have to come up with a new toolkit. But the idea of cyber war is very far from being precise. Another interesting thing in that paper and, and in others on at that time is that you have one part of the elephant that we call hacker warfare and so at some point in the 2000 ish things becoming things become accelerating a lot and there are three key dates in that shift the first one is 2007 with major attacks on Estonia and Estonia says under which condition do I deserve help from NATO because I have been attacked as a nation and so it brings this question of what is war into the international realm with a lot of urgency, and it's you know, first attempt to say we need to draw a line between what what's an attack and what's an act of war, and we need to be able to answer that question. Then we have two thousand eight with major attacks on Georgia, Georgia, who is in an open conflict with Russia, I and mean, we we you know we realize that it's not. It's not as much as we thought. The idea that anyone could blow up anything because they're a teenager who tried to change their grades, but it's mainly nations that are in open conflict already. But it's still complicated because we still don't have this threshold, and we still really can't fully attribute and saying, you know, this is an act of war from you to this other nation. So we you know, we're putting another sense of urgency into drawing this line between war and peace. In 2009, we have the deployment of Stuxnet. Which is a very important date because it's the first malware that we see targeting physical infrastructures. So it's a malware everyone who looks at it says, Oh, that whatever it is coming from, it's coming from a state. This is again this is not teenage hacking. This is states that are behind it and it's been deployed to accelerate the centrifuge of nuclear Iranian facilities. Um, and so you know, we're still, we're still facing this problem and we still don't have this line for what, what's, this, what's an act of war, what's the difference between, between war and peace. And 2009, interestingly enough, is also the moment in which we create the U.S. Cyber Command. So rephrasing it, we have a cyber army, but we don't know what cyber war is, right? And then, of course, this is going to create a little, a little bit more questioning. So if we look about it, like at it today, right? the shift from 2009 to today, what's going on today? Today, Ukraine is the country that is tar- being targeted by cyber-, cyber attacks. And so the media are prompt to say, oh, Ukraine is under cyber war. But we, we still really don't know if that makes any sense. And we still haven't drawn this line. And we still have no, no idea whatsoever on how to address that from an international law perspective. So, Keith Alexander, interestingly enough, who is um, both the head of the NSA and the U.S. Cyber Command, uh, a couple weeks ago, right before this attack spread on Ukraine, he addressed that question, and he he was talking before the Senate, and he said, you know, there's something we need to solve, and there's a line we need to draw here, and he said the question is when do we act, right? It's a policy decision. We need to draw a line because we don't want to be in a situation in which we're attacked. And then after, we're like, oh, well, that was not okay. That's what we think is war. So let us answer with a different sort of toolkit. So he's calling for that. One of the reasons he's calling for that, and one of the reasons this is a debate that is happening in the realm of cyber war and in the realm of inter-nation states is because most of the international law is based on this idea of the difference between the state of war and the state of peace. It's been like this since the 17th century, and this is how we think through what is just in a war. We have a set of law to address how it's legitimate to enter a war, and a set of law to address how you should behave in a war. So if we pause here, we have this urgent question of drawing a line between a war and peace. And it's a question that's been on our minds since a long time. And we still really don't have the answer to that, and there's an urgency to create an answer to that. But if we take a, te- a step back and start thinking about where is this question coming from, and I'm not saying that there is it's a very legitimate question, right? I'm not, I'm not undermining the threats. These are very legitimate threats, and they're urgent stakes and they're international stakes, and the military has all legitimacy to think about this. But let- let's see what- what's what's hiding in this question. So. Quickly, from a boring theoretical perspective, one of the reasons we seek to draw lines between war and peace is simply because we seek to organize the violence of states. States have a monopoly on violence, a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. And the way we're organizing it is we create systems in order to encourage the use of force where we need it, for instance, in security or in pursuing crime, and to discourage the use of force where we feel it is a threat to our democracy or to our society. right? And so many of the ways we have organized this use of force rely on this distinction between, between war and peace. So this is where we are, right? We're at, we're at the idea, we're at the idea that drawing a line between war and peace is the story of organizing state violence. And what the military concluded, and I think that this is a conclusion that is valid for outside military circles, and it's valid for outside international circles, is that there are two core reasons why it's very challenging to do that on cyberspace, and why it's more challenging to do that on cyberspace than in real life. So in real life, we have systems to organize this violence. They depend on what we call war and what we call peace. Suddenly, it's much harder for us to trace the line between what we call war and what we call peace. And therefore, it's much much harder for us to organize state violence in cyberspace. So the two problems, the first one is the inside-outside problem, is that most of the way we organize state violence is articulated between what is going on inside and what is going on outside. So we can take um, many examples to that. Two that are helpful in our conversation. The first one is the example of spying. So for a long time, spying was something that you would want your state to do outside, but you would not want your state to do inside. And then the threat model changed because you had insider spies that you needed to get after. But the whole idea of how we organize the violence of spying Fundamentally, is organized on this idea that there are things happening outside and things happening inside. So one of the one of the things that surprised um, the public when we had the first uh, Snowden leak on June fifth is that it was it was a court order from FISA, and FISA's first F stands for foreign, right? And so people didn't understand why there was this massive collection of Verizon metadata from domestic from a domestic perspective articulated by a foreign court. And just generally this idea that we needed to articulate new systems to deal with the problem that in cyberspace there is no inside, there is no outside, because we're all out there on the net and this is what we like about it, was the first challenge. Another challenge that is is very clear on the inside-outside issue, for instance, is communication. For a while, when we started to draw this line between communication and public diplomacy and propaganda, we said it was very simple: propaganda is things is happening outside, public diplomacy is happening inside, right? And we even had law that said the state is not allowed to influence public opinion inside. And so this text was revised with Smith-Mund Act in, in 1948, but we still have bits of that, right? So the current law, it was updated in 2013, says. No funds are authorized to be appropriated to the Department of State or the Broadcasting Board of Governors to be used to influence pu- public opinion in the US. So if you're thinking on the idea that we have no outsider right side, and, and they're supposed to be broadcasting somewhere, and they're not supposed to broadcast inside, then you realize that the whole system by which we organize the state power is, is really under, um, under pressure from new complicated conditions. Then you have attribution, which other people call the dog issue, which is you know no one knows you 're a dog on the internet and that 's complicated because the way we organize state violence also has a great deal to do with who who is exercised, who is it going to be exercised against and so for instance, if you have no idea where a cyber attack is coming from, then you have complicated time drawing the line between what is a cyber crime and what is you know a cyber act of war and what will be cyber terrorism but many of the way we conceive state violence relies on this lines. Um, one way to see it is this is also how we decide who is dealing with an issue it's law enforcement or if it's the intelligence or if it's the military a real life aspect of that is um, the idea that law enforcement is not conducted by military means for instance if you're driving and you're going too fast you might be arrested, but it's going to be a cop. It's uh, law enforcement who's going to be with this cop car, and you're not arrested by a tank with someone who's from the military and that uses you know, military tools. Again, it might be more efficient to do that than car chase, but this is not the way we think about this. And we can very clearly see what's the difference between all these tools in real life, but it's, it's more challenging in cyberspace, right? So who's acting, and therefore who's entering to this act It's it's, it's new complicated things um, that we have to deal with. So basically, cyberspace is complicating our ability to rely on the system we know to make the difference between between peace and war. And we don't always have a plan for constitutional compliance in that new situation. So the current state of the answer to that question, which is what is the difference between peace and war in cyberspace? is is pretty law. And we have growing frustrations on all part of the map, right? So Friday, I was at a panel on the Harvard International Law Journal Symposium. It was a panel on sovereignty in cyberspace. It was very interesting. And um, there was a person whose name is Susan Brenner, who has been been a judge and a professor. And she's been prosecuting cybercrime since more than 30 years now, and she was saying, I've been doing this for more than 30 years, and I still don't know where to trace the line. I still can't really, you know, understand what's a crime, and like, I've been working on this with all the experts, and it's these are lines that we still don't know how to trace. And, and again, she's she's super smart. She's been doing that for so long, and it's her full-time job, right? And even um, citizens have simple questions that are not being addressed in that in that regard. For instance a simple question that we've heard is the citizen concerns that say I would like to know who in the government and under which condition can hack into my computer to remotely um, activate my camera, for instance. This is, a, this is a fairly legitimate question to ask and the answer to that is, is very complicated, it has different dimensions, it depends on things that you can measure so we, we're facing the fact that whatever system we have organized is cracking under a lot of pressure and and under a lot of confusion from all parts. Um, Another way we see that, and, and it was very interesting, is that when the leaks appeared, people, lawmakers who had contributed to drafting the legal frameworks that made that possible would stand up and say, oh, I never voted for anything allowing what we're seeing right now. And the answer was like, yes, you did. But because you don't see the big picture, right? you didn't fully understand how all of that clicked together in this new system that we're trying to bring about to organize state power. So we we have a blurry picture. But there there are three basic reasons why this picture is very blurry, and two we have to deal with. The first first reason why the picture is very blurry is legal density. This is organized by a lot of different laws that are applying and interacting in complicated manners. Second reason is technical complexity. So for instance. A line that we have been trying to trace between what is a spy agency and a military agency, Um, if you look at what you need to do, it involves a lot of different operations to conduct a cyber attack and we need to cut them in a way that we say this goes there and this goes there. So understanding this very simple line also requires a great deal of complexity. Uh, technical complexity, and then there's a the problem of secrecy, right? Because most of these laws are being interpreted in a complicated way, or because most of these conversations are being conducted in a classified manner. Th- this doesn't really help forming the whole picture, and somehow it, it's, it's normal because all of these issues are, are fairly new. Even though, from a general, general generational perspective, they're not so new because we saw you know people were asking this question three years ago. So, this is where we are. And I wanted to pause and try to figure out how we have set ourselves up to tackle these challenges. Right? So from the idea that we've been trying to draw these lines between war and peace, and that these are complex because of normal issues and we have a hard time seeing the big picture, trying to see why. How did we try to draw this picture? And so when we try to think about complicated pictures like this, um, we often follow some sort of frameworks. right? That means that we have a certain set of principles that we're trying to follow. We have a specific vocabulary so that we can engage all the minds in that problem. And, and we just define the question a certain way. So the first framework on how do you solve the question, which is how do you organize state violence in cyberspace, is a framework that we sort of know about. Because it's a framework that just says, oh, that's, that's an easy answer. How about we just don't? How about we declare that, you know, state has no, ex- you know, no sort of violence to exercise in cyberspace? And it's, it's a classic cyber, cyber, you know, libertarian framework. And uh, if this was working, you would see a picture of John Perry Barlow, because I would be around to read you the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace in 1996, which sort of translates this idea that one of the, you know, one of the ways to answer the question was to say, how about no state in cyberspace? So it's a declaration that says, you know, you governments of the industrial world, giants of flesh and steel, you have no sovereignty where we gather. I come from cyberspace, the home, the new home of mind, And basically, you have no means that we... Oh, this is not working. That we should be fearing. So that's, that's one way to answer the question. Another way to answer the question is to think about it in terms of cyber war. And so where I'm trying to get at is that we constantly see cyber war as a threat, right? And if we see it as a threat, the question is oh, how soon is it going to happen? How disruptive is it going to be? How bad is it going to be? Is it new? Is it, you know? But if you see it as a framework, you understand that half of the answers to that come from the box in which the question was born. And so, so the first one is that we have to acknowledge that um, cyber war is also a framework, and it was always conceived as a framework. Um, and so I'll circulate the slides after. But there are a bunch of documents that talk about these new challenges for the military and the need for the military to find new frameworks to orient their action in that, in that um, new thing. So cyber war, we don't ha- always have to analyze as a threat. We can say, oh, maybe that's just a set of principles that is seeking to guide how we're going to organize state action in cyberspace. And so, you know, the next normal question is what is contained in that framework? And it's a complicated question, because if you track this idea of cyber war, what it contains, and what are their main principles, there's no one document that says, oh, this is the cyber war doctrine, right? So it has a lot of names across different services and across different times. It, you know, it's electronic warfare, control and command warfare, strategy warfare, cyber war, cybernet, it's a bunch of things. But it sort of all comes back, it, it's, it's all just like, um, collected at some point in this idea of information operations and information operations I wish I could show that to you information operation um, guide the principles and the mission of the military in cyberspace so by looking at the evolution of all these doctrines and all these ideas I saw and I might you know and I, I, I want more minds on this but Looking at all, all the way this, is I, see, I see three core tenets, right? To answer this question of how do you solve state power in an environment in which you have no inside, no outside, and in which you can attribute. So, the three core tenets is first, cyberspace is some sort of new far west, right? So, we're going to start from scratch and we're going to devise new principles. Because you know because it's um, it's completely new and somehow it's interesting because it also relates to our the first framework, the idea that you know it's Balo's idea too it's the far west, and we can declare it independent and so you can see that in this idea of cyber war and the second one is that offense is a new defense, and maybe this you know made sense when the principle was divided twenty years ago, but Today, I think we need to be aware that this is pervasive in, 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 this, in this ideology that is shaping the world and that maybe this doesn't make sense anymore. And the third, the third idea is that cyber takes place between war and peace. Uh, this idea that cyber takes place between war and peace, you can see it from the very seed of the thinking about cyber war. So what I have is a bunch of documents from 1976 that says that, and that says information operations is the thing that will have to guide the army and the military, both in times of war and both in times of peace and across all the, all the um, dimensions of how can state act in cyberspace. That's really interesting. Another thing that I wanted to show you that how each operation corresponds to a state of war or to a state of peace is a question that is constantly being asked in all these documents and the answer you can see you can see modified so I wanted to, to show you some sort of evolution of the spectrum of war and peace and conflict and different ideas that you know this doctrine has for what is supposed to go when for instance psychological operation is often placed as a di- in a different part of the spectrum right Um, Mostly it starts in the war, the idea is that the military shouldn't be deploying psychological operations in war, and then it translates otherwise in the spectrum, and the spectrum itself changes its name, right? So at first you see war, peace, and then you see peace, conflict, peace, and it's, it's, it's very interesting to see that since the very beginning, this framework of cyber war has a very complicated relationship to the idea of war and peace. The idea is that in cyber there will be no war and there will be no peace. And it's very complicated because if you, if you take it back to where we were, the question that is being asked to cyber war right now is to solve its own paradox, right? It's to draw this line between war and peace in order to bring about an international order. But if you see where it's coming from, it looks like this is not going to be solved like this. So if you bring to the idea that this is a framework or an ideology or a set of principles, um, how do you measure what this has produced? And the, the way I've approached it so far is I'm trying to measure it on four levels, right? So, that's more helpful with slides, but so it's fine. The first layer is on the public debate. How does it shape the public debate to hide the question of why, how we devise state violence on cyberspace into the question of cyber war? How does it constrain the public debate to not acknowledge that this is also a framework and to only think of it as a threat? How does this reorient the conversation around security? How does this allow us who's in the conversation, who's not in the conversation? What's, what sort of constraint on the public debate does that idea exercise? The first one, the second one is on the institutions and the operations, right? If you, tear the, if you take the three tenets of that doctrine that we can see and that has evolved, if you see the three tenets, how has that organized the institutions and the operations? How much of the institutional mess that we have a hard time conceiving and describing comes from these three tenets? And for instance, this line that we've been trying to trace between the mission of a spy agency, such as the NSA, and the mission of a military command, such as the U.S. Cyber Command, and, and people, and Bruce among them, have called for a better separation of the two, and even the President's review group said, okay, now let's be serious, one goes under under one set of authorities, the other goes under two sets of authorities. Putting them together creates an overlap that we don't have a system to exercise oversight on, this line was never able to be traced, and notably because it comes from that framework in which we don't have a plan, because it has said since the very start that we will not going to solve this problem between war and peace, and we're still trying to solve important problems from a very constrained box. So the third layer is how that produces on the low on the law. So what is the consequences of that framework on the legal layer, um, and? How you can observe that from a normal layer and from some sort of cyber layer and how they interact together um and the fourth the fourth layer on which i i want to have this conversation is the international layer when we're coming to the international discussion with this set of ideologies behind us how does that constrain us in our ability to work with our true allies i think that one of the most um, damaging and sad thing to observe from a European perspective living in the United States after the Snowden Leaks is, is new dissensions between countries that are true allies such as you know, the US and Germany and France and the problem is, is, is actually you know, bigger than that. So we, we, we need to not break the values that, that, that need to you know, bring us in together to solve bigger problems is what I'm trying to say in a complicated way. So. If you take a step back and try to see the bigger picture from that perspective, trying to see what has organized the bigger bigger picture, you see a very distorted um, application of cyber power in cyberspace, of, of state power in cyberspace. Some people call it cyber power. So if you see a map of all people involved, it's not necessarily that there is too much state power in cyberspace. There is too much state power in cyber if you look at one side of it. For instance, we we feel that the surveillance is being too heavy. We feel like the ways in which the state has been entitled to hack into people's machines have been too heavy. But if you look at the other side of the map, you see places in which it still looks very much like a complete far west. So conversations from people who are small and medium businesses, for instance, they would tell you we have basic cybersecurity concerns and in the real world we know how to operate about it, we know, you know what's the nature of our conversation with the FBI and in the cyber world we feel completely left out and, and this part of the map generates conversations just that, you know, such as the right to hack back which is the idea that when you're attacked are you going to be able to attack back so the things are like from, from a power perspective as traditional um, far west I have a right to self-defense perspective and so the other old problem is that you feel that if you see the bigger picture it's, it's sort of collapsing on itself. Uh, a quote that I like is from Yochai Benkler who wrote in the garden, the American body politic is suffering from a severe case of autoimmune disease or defense system is attacking other critical systems of our body. What's interesting is that I, I think that we're reaching the point in which everyone is going to be um, aware of that idea. This idea that this framework has Constrained us into having specific conversation and prevented us from building bridges to advance together and sort of consider the entire map. It's slowly making its way everywhere. Um, a surprising, a surprising place to see it is also Keith Alexander, who, on the same speech a couple of weeks ago, said, "I think we need to step back and set a framework for discussion with the American people, notably because they don't understand the system that you're trying to describe." This is going to be absolutely import- important, he said, in setting up what can and cannot do in cyberspace, what we can and cannot do in cyberspace, to protect this country. Bring about the idea that I think we need to recognize that the way we're thinking about state power today is very constrained by the influence of the cyber war framework, and we need to break through it and bring about the conversation in new new grounds without the... Without the um, the heavy influence of principles that we divided in specific circles 20 years ago that might be outdated and that prevent us from having conversations. So again, I'm not saying that the threats in cyber war are not real, I think these are really real threats, and I'm not saying that these problems are complicated, to not, not complicated, these are very complicated problems. I'm merely saying that the way we're setting ourselves up to address it has no chance whatsoever of success because we don't even recognize that all of this is being fought in echo chamber and in boxes by people that are very molded in their own ideologies so um, what one of the ways to think about it and and it's a quote that people sort of like go to the days, is the Kennedy quote that says our problems are man-made and therefore they may be solved by men the problems of humanity is beyond human beings and I think this this. This is interesting that the quote resurfaces in this debate because people are saying, okay, you know, we get it. It's a complicated system. It's legally dense. It's technically complex. Part of it is secret. It's new. It's We don't really get how we got there, and we can't see the bigger picture, but it has to be possible, and um, I, I think it's true, but it has to be possible together as a society in a collective dialogue that we have to bring about, and to bring about this collective dialogue, to bring these this bridges, I think we we need to... First, have this critical m- examination of the framework of cyber war and bring about a new framework to talk about these issues. So, that was the version without all the quotes and the material. <laughs> 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 Voila. And I'm looking forward for your feedback and discussions. And I, and I see frowning out there, and I'm happy to, you know.
1: Is that in you describe as the real world? We have sovereignty rights and human rights, and those to some degree, you know, reflect basic principles, but also reflect where we draw the line over what would be an aggression or what would be the kind of human rights abuse that would maybe result in military intervention. And it seems like maybe the cyber world needs to figure out what its core principles are, but also what those rights are, and whether they're the same or different real world to be part
0: of that discussion. Yeah, the, the question of discussion is a really good one, because one of the reasons we managed to have this conversation in the real world is that everyone gets a voice, including civil society, right? But if we if we can't have a voice in cyber war issues, or in things that are branded as cyber war issues by civil society, we're never going to be able to draw this line. Because again, it's a conversation that's very important, very defining, very impactful, but it's happening within within a specific box and with a specific set of vo- you know vocabulary.
2: You yeah. comment on uh, war and peace being two sides of the same coin and how you define both because I think many in peace movements would define peace as not just the absence of war but yeah. a much richer state which involves things like trust, involves uh, positive uh, relationships between individuals and and states, which would if we were talking about cyber peace in that context, then surveillance other things have no no place in a, a space of peace. Even if it's, but it seems like yeah. some of what you were defining as drawing a dividing line is very much within the world of a binary. You, you you're yeah. either a state of war or a state of peace, rather than a, a richer articulation. Piece.
0: Sure, it's a really good question because I'm not advocating for the idea that you know we need to draw a dividing line. I'm saying this is the state of the conversation. It's people running around being like, we need to draw this line. And I understand why this is question, notably because of international law, right? But again, and, and I very much agree with that. There's many conceptions of peace. One conception of peace is called negative peace. It's when there's no violence anymore. And if you focus on cyber war as a threat, then there is always a threat, and there's never cyber peace, right? So our over-focus on the idea of cyber war being a threat that's gonna come upon us and that we need to prepare for prevents all sort of idea of cyber peace, because in that framework, cyber peace is sort of naive state in which one day we're gonna wake up and the net is gonna be at peace. If you say, well, let's take a step back, and all of this includes frameworks and principles that we've divided to think about this, then cyber peace can be the process by which we bring about a public dialogue, a sense of transparency, a sense of big big picture, and in that framework, it exists, right? So if you stop looking at cyber war as a constant threat, if you say, okay, let's take a step back, maybe it's a framework, then you have a chance to think through cyber peace. If it's a constant threat that's gonna come upon you, you have no chance to think of cyber peace and it's not even a helpful concept.
2: One of the things about getting older is that things start to sound familiar. Yeah. Um, and what what I was thinking about as we were talking, sort of the early days of the Vietnam War, the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, where there were two very different concepts of combat. Um, there was the traditional United States Army, um, and then there were the Viet Cong, who were fighting by an entirely different framework. Yeah. Um, and the um, it wasn't just that they were fighting differently i mean once once you started unpacking the arguments for war, was it a war of aggression? you know do you take it back to the French, et cetera um, and all that seems entirely as complicated um, you know as cyber warfare is now I mean that you just keep pulling the threads. And, you know, you can argue this back, you know, to, to the you know, original sin if you want. Yeah. Um, my question, I guess, is a really very depressing one. Do you feel there's any better chance of coming to some understanding of, you know, cyber peace when we haven't even figured this out for states of war that have been going on for much longer?
0: Well, I mean, so there are very several on which I can decide to take your question, right? And basically, P- well, I say, oh, that sounds familiar. P- and the most yeah.
1: one. And so,
0: and so the answer to, a that sounds familiar is, yes, it does, right? And this is why I think there's value in doing this and to be like, okay, okay, step back. Cyber war, how long have you been talking about it? You started in 1976, you know, what did you say in 1976? How did that evolve? How that responded, right? So taking a step back and be like, okay, yeah, it is complicated, it is pressing, it is urgent, but just, you know, let's, let's see where that's coming from. And not only is per se, it's a framework that is old and that we can look into, but of course it relates to other questions that have been explored differently. So there's, there's a lot of interesting relationships between how the military is thinking through cyber and how the military is thinking through terrorism or through the general idea of asymmetric warfare. So just understanding how how is it that people see the world and from where they see the world is is a value in itself. I think and this is why I'm not saying oh this is something entirely new. Great. I'm just saying let's take a step back and see where that's coming from. Um, and to the the other question, which is you know do we have a do we have a shot at figuring out peace in cyber if we can't figure it out in general? I think it's it's the question that people asked in Ukraine, right? So they said okay we're so ready for. For traditional war that we can totally do if anyone decides if any sovereign country decides to show up in another sovereign country with tanks and there's a border and they have governments we can totally do that it's easy our problem is terrorism right so a that's it's not true of course every situation is always more complicated and b it's not because you don't have so you haven't solved the old problems that you d- still don't have new problems right so now you have cyber war on top of something that looks like a traditional conflict that might even be a little bit more complicated because of history and all of that but so is the question are we going to you know give up trying to solve democracy problems I think we shouldn't I think I think the only I think the only question is what what is our best shot at it what is the best way to approach it and a naive answer is together on neutral grounds with a common vocabulary with know, outside of echo chambers and with a very clear idea of the question we're trying to solve.
3: Of, uh, the way that um, cyber warfare often operates as like a deterrent, where um, the role of deterrence in cyber warfare where it's about power projection and virtual bi- virtualized form of warfare that doesn't necessarily have to be actualized to have an immediate effect. How does this, um, you know, play into your analysis?
4: Um,
0: so... I, I comment this with my bias, and my, my personal bias is that there is a role for the military to be played in cyberspace. And I think that there is a valid reason to have you know, a cyber command and to have cyber warriors. And so in my own view of why there are valid reasons to do that, indeed there are problems of deterrence. And so I think this is fine if it's completed there, right? The problem is that because of this tiny little door of, of cyber war that we have opened, we sort of like started putting trucks and trucks of other places. The problem is not whether one specific point inside this entire umbrella is both legitimate and belongs to the military. I believe, yes. The problem is, like, how did we, you know, how did we create that door by which we have inputted all these massive trucks with other things that actually have nothing to do there and that we're not even properly debating because we didn't see them coming that way. But, yeah, I I think deterrence by the U.S. cyber warrior is a good thing to do. I think it it makes sense. But again, like I'm, I'm not saying I want to define cyber peace. I'm saying I would like to have this conversation with people that disagree.
5: I think this whole thing seems to be complicated by a few things. One, the prevalence of non-state actors <coughs> in uh, involvement in cyber warfare. For example, the very extensive botnets that are yeah. uh, owned and for rent by cyber gangs and also the uh, anonymous nature of many uh, cyber attacks where no one takes credit for them. And what's particularly disturbing is that the technological trends seem to be going in the direction of giving the cyber warriors potential for doing worse things. For example, the development of the Internet of Things with more sensors and other devices going directly on the internet Possibly with inadequate encryption or other uh, safeguard controls, the ability now for more voice recording and recognition. Uh, there were some incidents where microphones were being controlled remotely, as well as webcams and. Uh,
0: I agree with that, but the idea is that, you know, here's a playing field, it's complicated by many reasons. One of them is attribution, you don't know where it's coming from. Another one is that they're non-state actors. If you pile more and more states on that, if you connect more and more stuff, if you put more and more sensors, well then your problems, you know, with this playing field are sort of going to get more and more, you know, worse and worse. And Bruce often talks about trust issues and how all of this can come together with trust. If, if you have a dysfunctional playing field and you high enough the stakes on it, it's, it doesn't seem like it's going to go better.
5: Do you see a need for more forensics to be able to have more traceability to be able to resolve something?
0: I think we need to be clear about our inability to attribute anything, right? So that's something we said 20 years ago. What about now? It's still still, you know, it's still challenging, it's still complicated, but if we look at very serious attacks and what we can do in, in terms of uh, you know, reverse analysis of it and what we can do in terms of political analysis of it. Maybe it's not true that we're completely left in the dark in cyberspace. It's, it's true that there's, it's challenging, but maybe it's not true that attribution can never be solved, and this is what we need to base our system on.
5: Yes? Uh, I'm trying to understand, is there a real
3: difference in the way we should perceive or the way we should respond to, let's say, you know, the cracking of all those credit card numbers at, at Target? Is a, a, a cyber crime? Is it a cyber? Is it an act of cyber war? Does it make a difference whether it came from you know yes. some group of people in a basement in in Chicago versus if it came from the Estonian government? Yes. And if so, why? <laughs> if so, why? It's, it's like, yes. Why is there a difference?
0: Well, it's, you know, talk about people who prosecute that. Yeah. People who were there, standing with the force of the state, and that are supposed to be like this is how the force of the state is applied to that. Well, it makes a difference because. They have a hard time figuring out who's supposed to secure the thing in the first place. And therefore how do you put the state first into securing it? And then they have a hard time prosecuting because they don't understand how to qualify it. Therefore they don't understand who is supposed to answer to to this. You know, it, it does make a problem. Like of course we can say, hey, this is the far west, we have problems, we gotta answer no matter what, right? But but what our entire system is not based on these assumptions. It's based on, on something that we're trying to make fit and we, we haven't really found the way to that together actually
4: had a um it reminded me a bit of um like decades of discussion on uh, what the definition of net neutrality is yeah and then suddenly there was a law in a shitty place in the netherlands or something who cares about the country but then there was a law and we had something that we could analyze Yeah. yeah So, um, there is this 2008 document, adopted at this really weird conference in the Vatican. <laughs> World Federation of Scientists um, during yeah. the Vatican's Pontifical Academy. Yeah,
0: December I can talk about that.
4: You've probably seen about it. Um, yeah. So that establishes six principles of cyber peace. Does um, it really?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just, just so we get a little bit of context before we get into this document, this is a document that comes from the ITU. Yeah, yeah. And wow. that, right? And so you know, it, and the international space is Very even more complicated than the domestic one because no one advances with their objectives written on their shirt, right? So there's a lot of masquerading. So mm-hmm. it is a document that is called the Quest for Cyber Peace. It was produced by the ITU. It, it reveals a lot of biases that, that I, I. That I wish to find, but again, like I don't wish to have the conversation by myself. But I think that somehow it reveals a, a certain a certain type of view of world peace, and it and it's supposed to to tackle the idea of um, cyber arms treaty. So this an international discussion in which you can see interesting Chinese and Russian perspectives that is taking place in the ITU. So I'm happy to talk about this document, but I want us to understand where it's coming from.
4: Okay, it's it's so emerges in that must, context. Um, has there since uh, the emergence of that document being uh, rather than problematization of the of the subject matter um you know cyber security is called cybersecurity here but in china and russia they call it information security because they want to include content you know all that you know that that's of course happening further problematization but i wondered whether there since that document has been like uh, a constructive articulation of cyber peace that is that's uh, biased towards either the papal or the uh, ITD, uh, hegemony.
0: So, I think that the idea that you started with this, you know, example of net neutrality is really interesting. Because one of the reasons why eventually we we're able to argue about what it is or what we want it to be is that we were having a conversation with everyone at the table, right? So these are the people who are the stakeholder. That includes civil society. This is what we're talking about. We have words to talk about it. We have forums to convene, and at some point, we see a public discussion arising, right? I think that one of the problems that we're, we're seeing with cyber peace is that we don't have that. We're we're trapped into black boxes and echo chambers and specific vocabularies and ideological frameworks, and because I don't see a real conversation happening on this, right? I, I don't see that we, I, I don't think we're close to a definite, definition of cyber peace yet. But I think that the first, you know, the first process is how do we set ourselves up to answer that question yeah. before what is our answer?
4: Very short follow-up. Um, so maybe there was a huge added uh, value to this emerging in this place where nobody usually really takes any Should notion of what's happening. You know, um, um, this, this occurred in a, in a jurisdiction or in a country where usually nobody, of the huger powers at place who have large interest in actually not really furthering the cyber peace discussion. Um, um, this emerged from like a really small place and now tomorrow or I think next week or something it's been voted at the EU and instead of you know coming down from from these large forums with all these huge powers at the table they're probably never going to def to, to come up with a, a common or shared value uh, framework. Um, This emerged from from bottom up, and I I wondered whether, you know, places, um, you know, that we don't usually really take a look at, whether there has been a, I mean, Costa Rica, for example, has a very interesting history of of, uh, pacification. Uh, I think it's the only country in the world that doesn't have an army. So perhaps, maybe there, uh, I, I was just wondering. No, but that's
0: exactly go. part of the reason why I want us to think about it collectively on these terms, right? Because another way to approach the question can be, well, it's not that much of a complicated question, even though it's hard to solve, but it's how does state power is being organized in a society. And so you can look at other society and be like, oh, these are the principles by which we organize it. and us, we're still running on this set of principles, right? So if you see sort of like, you know, a couple steps bow, you see the framework, you see the bigger picture, you see the question you're trying to solve, then of course you, you start seeing other solutions, which brings back to the Marshall McLuhan quote, right? First we have to see what is it we're trying to solve and how we're looking at that object. Otherwise, we don't really have a shot.
6: <laughs> and I think we've touched on it a bit in the conversation. Uh, one of the issues here is, is the arms race. The, the, yeah. so the fundamental you know, arms races are fueled by two things by fear and greed I mean, we don't we uh, we don't know what they are doing but we want to be better therefore we must and, and when you look at arms races the way we deal with them is through mutual disclosure uh, mutual verification building trust which because of all of these attribution problems non-state actors uh, the ability to hide these these weapons becomes really difficult. So my fear is the, the overall fear is so great because cyber is so easy to disguise in so many ways that getting world leaders out of the frame is going to be extraordinarily difficult. And why do I wor-
0: want world leaders out of the frame? Why do I want them? Why, why would you want that?
6: Because they're, the I mean, they're the ones pushing the money. They're the ones but, fueling the arms race, which, which trickles down in so many ways.
0: But they're also the ones who are able to bring about a good, constructive public dialogue with a civil society voice if they want it. Right. Great progress has come from both the U.S. and the EU on this topic. And one of the reasons it has come is not because they had really smart military leaders. And again, like, I think military leaders are really smart. I just think that this is not a question that they should solve by, by themselves. And it's, it's, it's a question that we must put on the table, and it's too hard to put on the table because we don't have an understanding of how to talk about it and how has it that we've been looking at it so far. We don't have the common vocabulary, we don't have the common forums. And so the question is not we're taking it out of the word leaders. The question is, well, you know, remember, this is a conversation for everyone that we need to reframe in, for, for the stakes to be apparent and for everyone to be able to wade in, including civil society. Civil society currently has no say, no understanding, no voice, nothing whatsoever in cyber warfare questions. But that's insane. If you look at what is at stake, right? Because if there's everyone on the net is is a potential enemy, then everyone on the net is also a potential victim. Or I, I I I'm really bad at taking questions.
6: <laughs> uh, what lessons could you draw from the? Uh de-dossing of WikiLeaks and then the retaliatory de by anonymous of other people who were against WikiLeaks and sort of whether or not, unclear whether or not that was a state thing. I mean, I don't know, what, what frame would you use to describe that as?
0: Far West, it's good. It's like you're attacked. I'm, hack- I'm hacking back. You know, this, this is, again, like, n- fundamentally, this is, the, you can put it back on the context of how r- violence responds to violence, and this is just pure Far West. We don't have means to qualify that. We don't have means to... Think about it. We don't have means to prosecute it, so it's like violence versus violence. I, not the democracy that I want to live in, but you know, it's just one framework to think mm-hmm. about it.
6: If it turned out the U.S. government was involved in the attacking of WikiLeaks, as some people have speculated, would that change your frame?
0: Well, it, it wouldn't necessarily because if it was true, how how can we point to it? How can we understand it how can we prosecute it you know the only thing we can do is look at it and be like oh, "Hmm, that doesn't seem like you know the way we want it it's like other questions and, and Susan and I've been talking about it, like other questions on this will include social bots right when governments will deploy social bots to re to reorganize conversation with, which can be done for really good reason or it can be you know outright pure propaganda if we don't have a way to talk about this and what is at stake and to organize how how we want to deal with it, then the only thing we're going to be left out doing is sitting there and being like, oh, it doesn't seem like the word I want to live in. I don't like it. But we don't have a conversation that brings about the, how we're going to fix it. That, that, someone had... um,
3: sometimes when I, I, I think about these things, well, a concept that comes to mind that's useful for me is um, one from psychology called uh, double bind. And uh, double bind is, is when there's a, an idea which, or a problem which when looked at at different levels of abstraction, the, the different levels conflict with each other. Yeah. So, so in something like this, you have this sort of level of, of, of the government saying, what we really need is security. And, uh, and then what you have at the level of, of personal discourses, what we, what we really need is, is liberty, and privacy and and freedom and uh and the those discourses are in conflict because they're presented as as either or the things you do for one are different than the things you do for another and uh and when you look at at the sort of technical underpinnings of all of this you see in a certain sense a similar thing where um what people want there's only one internet basically but what, what people want from the government actors in that is transparency but what people want for themselves is privacy. And uh, and so it seems like and that there's there's these one set of tools and it, it seems like the conflict is is if, if you build absolute privacy for all the people, then you give absolute privacy for the government. But if you give um, you know, absolute transparency to the government, then you give the government power to have that transparency in all the people. And so I wonder, you know, it just seems like a pretty deep
0: conflict. So I disagree with this, and again, I might be wrong. The way I'm seeing it is I don't see a government or an army saying we're all in for security and we're nothing for freedom. And I don't even see the result of what this framework has produced revealing that. And again, we can go back to the small and medium businesses and say we are in the cyber security far west. we got it. There's, you know, there's plenty of state power. There's plenty of state violence on the Internet, but it's not targeted at the people who are who are cyber-attacking us, right, so, so there's still part of the map that are now being covered by security, we can't really live, in, we can't really say that but if, you, if you look at cyber-attacks, you can't really say that we have achieved security and that this view has produced security. Um, what's interesting is that, and I and I, and I quit this because it wasn't in, in my slides, but what you're saying it's, a, it's another framework that exists um, that, that is to say, the, the way we are going to think about safe power is via the code. And that, that's a very less code is low framework, and it's a, good, it's, a good, it's a good thing in so many ways, right? But, and so you can compare in that framework how you think about the internet is shaped, and I think it's, it's a scheme that we all know you know, with the code and the norms. And, and the idea is that you are going to constrain the power who is controlling the code and the infrastructure, And you can think about a traditional governmental way to think about what is acting on shaping cyberspace. And then you have DIME, the Instruments of Power, Diplomatic, Military, Information, and Economics. Right, But I think saying it's all in the infrastructure and in who controls the code, it's another framework to think about it. It solves one of the issues. it only solves it if you actually have an impact on the infrastructure level, because if not, then you're just solving it for some of the people, and you have people who are left out of your technical solutions. But I see this as another framework that we can date, that we can analyze. And again, I think that in, in this room, you know, let might be the point of this framework that we're most familiar with.
3: So a narrative level. So the yeah. stories that we tell each other about these things are in conflict. And um, and that makes it that makes it very difficult to have particularly a political debate, because the one side of the debate will lean on security and the other side will lean on liberty. And they'll 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 both exaggerate their arguments a little bit because you have that's how you get your messages through in the world. And the result is they seem irreconcilable. And the result of that is a kind of schizophrenia where, like, people just can't make up their minds and do anything.
0: I don't see that in actor's position but I agree with you that sometimes it's often portrayed like this and I think that the fact that it's portrayed like this when it's really it's it's really no one's package, right? No one's coming at this table saying, I'm all in for security versus someone else saying I'm all in for, you know, freedom and, and so the fact that we're we're ending up at this debate proves the malfunction of our public debate. And you are you have people that run around and say things like this, right? But but somehow if you look at the overall framework they're an oddity. So Stroud Baker, for instance, is running around saying, you know, privacy activists have blogs on their hands. You know, he is an oddity produced by this debate because truly I don't think this is the state of the conversation we want to be having. Um, and that's precisely the sort of like, this is as bad as it gets when you don't have a shared vocabulary. Privacy activists have blogs on their hands, really? You know, like that. Yeah, that's as bad as it gets when you don't have a shared vocabulary.
3: Who would you say sir, make that statement?
0: Sorry? Baker. What? I'm sorry, did I didn't hear?
3: He asked who made that we'll statement. Question. He said who made the statement about uh, bloggers with blood on eggs. That's, his sort, of,
6: that's sort of his sort of statement.
0: Yeah, but <laughs> well, you know, that's what I'm saying. He's, he's sort of the symptom of our inability to have the debate. It's, it's, you know, it's absurd. It's, it's, the stakes are too high for us to be talking in this sort of words. Sorry,
1: I didn't take your question: So as you said, uh, uh, trying to define war offline um, has traditionally meant drawing a line between permissible or lawful violence and unacceptable violence uh, carried out by states. Just wars: Just wars versus unjust wars. And then, of course, there's a separate body of law on how wars can be conducted, and there are plenty – I'm sure you already know this – lots of interesting lessons that can be drawn yep. from those debates. And, and then also there's now a long um, um, series of debates on how to define aggression in international criminal law, which, which also I think – I don't want to go into detail, but there are some interesting ideas there. I thought that was kind of an, an interesting um, set of ideas on how to define peace online. As you've said, we haven't got war defined, but but curiously, we also haven't got peace very well defined. And those, I thought, were at least two interesting competing notions. And so then I'd like to to suggest one more definition that would be useful. What is impermissible violence online? Yeah. That would help to define an act of war and then also warfare. So for example, is stealing credit card numbers aggression or an act of violence? Um, I would think not. And so for me, that's obviously not an act of war or warfare. But I can think of – to finally stop talking – three possible vectors that one could use to define war and or an act of war uh, online. One is um, uh, who's doing it. And other people, and you yourself, Camille, have said, should this be only limited to state actors? And then we have the difficulty of figuring out who is actually doing things online. So who's doing it? Um, What is the intention? Which, of course, is very difficult to determine, but is always used in law to define unlawful acts. You need a mens rea. Um, And then finally, and I haven't heard anybody mention this, what is the effect? Offline, we define war by... Violence, you know, uh, uh, impermissible use of violence in the law of war means you are disproportionately killing civilians. That's a, a big simplification. But generally speaking, that's, that's what defines an, an, an impermissible yeah. uh, use of violence within war. So, could one define what sort of acts online do unacceptable damage, and how do we define that? Damaged.
0: So if we're taking the, this levels that I would suggest, and this this is a the question of the threshold of violence and the threshold of consequences. It's very much an international level concept, like conversation. Um, and and one of the many problems people arguing on this fine to you know find like a common ground among themselves is that it, it's also much harder to measure cyber violence because it spreads. And so if you're doing a massive you know malware for a big state-sponsored cyber attack then then when do you measure the violence so do you measure it when you know ten years later they realize that oh you're in everyone's computer so that that's it's, it's, an, it's an interesting question and and it's happening at that level so it's an international level question um, the, the threshold by which we've seen that this, this is too much violence and, and I think that you know somehow it's the question that Alexander and Keith Alexander General Keith Alexander is asking right so what what when is it that we're going to be able to look at a situation and say, wait, no, 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 that, that's a standard that we to which we assume that we're gonna answer differently now?
1: So just quick follow-up. Generally speaking, in in law you would use intention or foreseeability. Yeah. If if there are ripple effects that are big, first thing you yeah. would ask is, were they intended by the actor? And if not, were they reasonably foreseeable? Of course, there are lots of different bodies of law that do this differently, but that's a pretty good rule of thumb, no? Would that work? One more quick
0: question. One more quick question.
3: I'm wondering if there's a bright line to define where cyber violence becomes, quote, real violence. Like, say, if I took control of somebody's car remotely and caused it to, to drive off a bridge and kill the, the driver, that's actual violence. That's not theoretical. Uh, right? You know, Deal with somebody's pacemaker and cause it to malfunction, and they have a heart attack. That's real violence. Is that really where we should be drawing the line?
0: So I'm glad you're mentioning this because this other topic that I'm working on is robotics policy issues, and this type of how that translates in this. And I love the question of self-driving cars and backdoors in self-driving cars because it's sort of like you know crystallizes all of this. But but
3: scenario to occur. Yeah, but, has, but yeah.
0: But we have uh, more subtle ways to to think about violence and yeah. traditionally we assume that psychological violence is yeah. violence and surveillance is, is is very harsh violence without you know like just the, the threat model goes both way how we do you know how do we conceptualize the cyber harm is a question we've been trying to solve by thinking about privacy harm or and and Axel last time brought up you know very good points about how different different legal traditions and constitutional tradition have a different approach of how do we conceptualize cyber harm. Privacy is a great lens to look at that. So voilà. Well, thank you so much for bearing with me through